Welcome back to Shouting, Shouting from, from the, the Kitchen. kitchen. Um, my name is Asina. I'm Thea. Yeah, and I just realized, like, we realized a couple weeks ago when we, after we recorded uh, our previous episode, that we have not been saying our names like or at we all. Just say our names to each other. Like, I'll say Asina. I'm like, hey, Asina. And I'll say hi there. But there's nothing like, there's no like, I'm Asina and I'm there. So, yeah, we kind of realized we forgot about that. So if you don't know whose voice is whose by now, that's okay. Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully this will refresh your memory. Um, but yeah, we're back, which is very exciting. It's been a hot, hot minute. It's been busy. Oh my God. So busy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many weeks it's been since we actually like released an episode um, I think it's just two weeks. Okay. It's, well, it feels like forever. It feels like forever because we love doing this. Yeah. And we record like pretty far in advance. So when we do release episodes, it's a bit later. So it's been a hot, hot minute. Um, um, but yeah, it's been a few weeks, uh, more than a few weeks since we last recorded an episode, which is, I think, why it feels so long. Yeah. And yeah. I've missed it. Mm-hmm. I chat with Asina a lot. You know, we're roommates. <laughs> um, but we got in here like 20 minutes ago and we were like, oh, my God, we have to figure this out again. There was a minute where we could not figure out how to turn the soundboard on, but Asina figured it out because Asina is amazing, legendary, iconic. Anyways. I pressed um, a few random buttons. <laughs> I love how you're tooting my heart after I was like pressing buttons like a small, <laughs> like annoyed to- toddler, like help. A uh, so, small annoyed toddler who figured it out. Thank you. A process, genius toddler. Process of elimination. Yeah. No, error. Process of error. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to say process of elimination because that yeah. sounds better, I think. Yeah. Yeah, process of elimination. Uh, but how are you? I'm good. Um, it was a busy week last week. Um, and every like time we record these episodes, we like to tell like little stories. And Asina was like, what little story do you want to tell? And I had just finished telling Asina a story of what like just happened to me 10 seconds ago. So I'm going to retell her this you story. You 100% should. So really dramatic here. I needed pee, and so I left the recording studio, and I went to the washroom, and I peed. It was just a pee, Mm -hmm. and then I was sitting there, and you know when you, like, know something bad has happened before it happens, and you're like, oh, no. You can feel it. You can feel it. Yeah. And so I look, I look to my side, and I look, and there's no toilet paper. I was like, ah, dang it. Devastating. Devastating. And so I was, like, (laughs) contemplating my options. I was like, what am I going to do here? And so I sit there for just, like, a few seconds, and someone else comes in the washroom. (laughs) And I'm like, in the back of my brain, I'm like, please go in the stall next to me. But in the back of my brain, I'm also like, am I actually going to ask this person? It's a little awkward. Um, And so they do. They they go into the stall right next to me. And I'm like, yeah. I'm going to do one of the most awkward things a human being can do. I don't know if you guys feel like it's awkward, but me, I'm like, yeah, I just failed going to the washroom because there's no toilet paper, so I'm going to seek help. And I, I asked them for toilet paper. That was so brave of you. Thanks, You're my thoughts and prayers. <laughs> no, okay, I think there's like three really embarrassing things that happen in washrooms. Number one, you forget toilet paper. Mm-hmm. So asking is number one. Yes. Asking, and then the little like, hand reached out yes. is so embarrassing because you're like you're like making human contact and you're like I don't want to be perceived right now but this is breaking that yeah and then you like touch fingers and your hands may be a little clammy because you're stressed <laughs> and it's not good um so that's like up there and then number three that I feel like we don't talk about enough mm-hmm. is when people like not like start to open your <gasps> stall and you're like somebody's Ooh. in here I hope it's locked I hope it's locked <laughs> John Mulaney did an amazing thing on this but like the panic of someone like trying to like get into your stall and you're worried and you don't know what like what are you supposed to say like o- like occupy is the standard procedure but it's so like formal yeah anyway I feel like we need to come up with like a better term that universally we can yeah. all say yeah just like someone's some, in here something to say I'm in here yeah please don't sorry <laughs> yeah yeah because I apologize Very constantly. Canadian. Yeah. Very Canadian. Exactly. Yeah. I had a funny story in the back of my mind, but it completely blanked. Um, but my friend and I have been studying in this library a lot. 
And this library has um, so IKB for the UBC students that listen to this podcast, which is everybody because it's uh, only our except. Friends. Oh yeah, <laughs> we only oh, we haven't we, we haven't a shout out. Okay, okay, yeah. So on the platform that we like upload our podcast to, it has demographics of people that listen to the podcast. So obviously, like 90% of it is Canadian, and 90% of it is like 18 to 22 because it's all of our friends. But, but. There was 1% of 1% who lives in Australia. So if you are in Australia listening to this podcast, we love you. We love you. And I know you didn't come back, which is so valid because it, like, has been reducing with every episode, which is, like, so valid. But, Bestie, please come back. We want you. We have an email. Send us an email. (laughs) We want to know who you are. We'll host you on the pod. I swear to God. (laughs) Just get a mic and we'll we'll figure out the time difference. But, oh my God, yeah. Come back, Australian listener. It was so nice to have you. And then also, I feel like I have to shout out the person from Britain, maybe? I don't know. We had a little Britain moment. So that was pretty cool. Whoever's in Britain... I an overseas person, incredible. Yeah. I'm very, very honored that you would listen to us. Um, but I hope you know we don't love Britain, but we love you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, IKB has a bunch of study rooms that you can book in advance. Um, so my friend and I have been like booking study rooms once in a while just to study in because it's like nice to have a private space. Uh, and so we booked one, and then we stayed, like, a few minutes past because we were like, okay, well, if people come, we'll just leave. Like, we'll just leave. We waited for, like, hours. No one came. And people had booked the room. I don't know what's going on because we always look at the rooms, and there's always empty despite always being booked. Yeah. Is this a sham? Like, what is – I don't understand. We don't <laughs> understand. You don't – I'm not even making this to be funny. I just don't understand why no one is using these rooms after they're booked. Like, I'm looking at you not, like, incredible. Like, I don't understand. I, I don't know either. The I'm sorry, IKB I'm controversy. Yeah, it's insane to me. Like, why would no one be in there? I digress. I benefit from it because I sometimes pop in to use them. Um, but whoever's booking those rooms, God bless, stay the fuck out of them because your girl loves to be there. Um, but, yeah, that that's some. those are some things happening. But you had a very busy week last week. And it all revolved around, or 90% of it revolved around, um, the subject we're covering today. Mm-hmm. That subject is drug policy, drug prohibition, in the BC context, drug decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Basically, how our governments deal with drugs. Yeah, it's very fascinating. And I'm very new to this. I don't know much about how like I, I've heard about it from you, but I'm not super involved. Um, so I'm very excited to talk to you more about it and kind of learn as we go. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm excited. Um, so when I came to Vancouver last year to start at UBC, like Asina, um, one of the things I knew I wanted to get involved in was like harm reduction work, specifically in the context of like substance use. Um, and so I got in contact with an organization called Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I joined their board and I joined the Vancouver chapter. As of right now, I'm still involved. I'm a member on the national board and I'm the chair of the Vancouver chapter. All of that is very unimportant, like roles, whatever. Um, but that's like where my context is from and where I've kind of done a lot of my learning in this subject and then where I am working more now is like through UBC through the UBC wellness center doing more kind of like on the ground harm reduction work for students drug checking services lots of like tangible resources fentanyl test strips naloxone training that kind of stuff Um, yeah, so a lot of where I come at this from is, like, the policy sense, because I love policy as a little poli-sci major, um, and just getting people resources. I am very lucky to not be very affected by the drug policy changes, because I am someone with 
um, the privilege, the substances. I choose if I am using substances come from a regulated supply. And so the changes in the kind of policy don't affect me personally. Um, and that's just something I want to mention as like a where I'm coming at this from. I'm coming at this from like a policy critique um, and from someone who has learned a lot and like listens to people with more lived experience and who are on the ground doing work. Yeah. Um, and the reason I said, oh, please, is because you are downplaying uh, your incredible work, which is incredible and uh, definitely should be celebrated. Um, and I think you're very, very cool for that. And I don't want you to not accept the amazing role. <laughs> what What am I saying? I don't want you to not accept how amazing you are. But thank you. Um, yeah, of course. I would never let that slide. <laughs> So the first thing that I wanted us to talk about before we talk about the current context is the historical context. And drug prohibition in Canada has always been something rooted in racism, uh, rooted in the control of specific groups of people and specific racialized groups of people. Um, and so with that we acknowledge the intersections between this prohibition policy uh, and ongoing colonization and how kind of drug policy in Canada is still seeped in colonization uh, as we acknowledge our place at the UBC Vancouver campus on traditional unceded and stolen Musqueam territory. So drug policy. Drug, drug policy. Drug prohibition. So drug prohibition first started in Canada with the Indian Act, um, specifically the prohibition of alcohol uh, for people with Indian status and people living on reserves. So that was the very first form of prohibition and obviously a form of prohibition that targeted Indigenous peoples. Then the next was the targeting of Chinese uh, railway workers, um, majority of whom were men, who used opium as a form of pain management. It was a very kind of culturally specific practice just because it was something that they had used prior to coming to Canada to work on the Pacific Railway. Um, that is not to say they were the only people using opium or drugs in Canada at that point, but they were specifically targeted and the Opium Act of 1908, which was put through by Mackenzie King, basically restricted the use of opium, opium and prohibited it when it was a form of pain management for workers who were doing a lot of physical labor and who were not paid adequately and were already targeted by a lot of other policies in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, Mackenzie King, at the time, one of the main reasons he put it through was because he said white women would start using it. And yeah. it goes back to the classic colonial white supremacist protection of white women um and it's interesting you mentioned like opium specifically and like the cultural aspect of it because it's so like wrought in colonialism and like the british push for opium in china is mm -hmm. just so terrible and terrifying uh and requires its own complete episode but there's so many layers of like colonial history to all of that uh but it's interesting how the fear of like white women being harmed is such a horrible guise uh, for anti-immigration and like anti anyone who doesn't fit that like standard. Speaking of, do you, English Lit Major, want to read the quote that I put under this section? I would love to read the quote. Uh, so the quote is, um, the development of drug policies has largely been fueled by fears of racial integration, indigenous sovereignty, and of black and Chinese men coupling with white women. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's very true. Um, and the last 
part I wanted in this kind of contextualizing, um, especially contextualizing drug prohibition in terms of racial context, is that the data continues to show that white Canadians are equally as... I'm sorry. I just ran all the back. All good. (laughs) It went down the wrong way. Okay. (laughs) I didn't want to interrupt you because you were speaking so eloquently. (laughs) Okay, go on. The last thing I wanted to put in this kind of history of prohibition and to contextualize the episode, especially in relation to drug prohibition as a form of colonization and racism is that data continues to show that white people, specifically white Canadians, are equally as likely to engage in drug use, but more specifically drug-related crimes, as racialized people in Canada, yet they are underrepresented in all areas of our criminal justice system. Indigenous peoples make up 4.3% of our population, but 24.4% of our federal prison population, while Black Canadians make up about 3% of our general population and about 10% of the federal prison population. Obviously, that is not all related to drug-related crimes, um, but in the context of this conversation, it is something to keep in mind that drug prohibition and ongoing criminalization of drug use and drug users is still something that targets racialized peoples in Canada more than it does white people. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I did a paper last year about the Olympics and how it impacted, you know, people across all economic spheres. And it's things like appearances factor so much more than actual structural change. And it's terrifying because like with the Olympics, it uh, primarily Un, like unhoused people were like shoved and like jailed and all of these horrible things. They were just like taken off the streets uh, for the sake of appearances uh, and to look like, I don't know, Vancouver had, you know, the situation, quote unquote, under control. Um, whereas actual care and actual like providing, like actually providing care uh, was just not considered an option. Um, and it primarily affected like indigenous unhoused people because uh the statistics you were talking you were talking about in regards to like indigenous folks with um the criminal justice system very much applies uh for unhoused people like uh indigenous people are a minority within the canadian population but they make up significant percent of the unhoused population and it's just like these structural things that continue to impact people all the intersections and nuances intersections and nuances um, should I read the thing? What are we doing now? Sure, yeah. We can just, like, why are we talking about this now? Do you want to talk about that? Sure. You can, like, ask me that and then I can okay. let you. Yeah. Uh, So we're talking about this now because of this recent policy that's come to place in BC. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. BC. Yeah. Um, and I can quickly overview it using this wonderful article that Thea has written. So I just want to preface this by saying I am not the one who did this research. Thea did. Um, I'm just reading out the lovely article that she wrote. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to do that now. Uh, so decriminalization has currently been passed in some form in BC. Uh, Under this policy that just passed in BC, uh, there's a form of decriminalization uh, that just began where adults who are, you know, 18 and older in BC will not be arrested or charged uh, if they have a small amount of certain drugs for personal use. This small amount is equal to or less than 2.5 grams. Uh, So the illegal drugs that, you know, quote unquote legal, uh, that are covered by this exemption are opioids, which includes like heroin, morphine, fentanyl, cocaine, uh, which includes both the crack and powder versions of it, meth, and MDMA. Uh, And it's important to note that this is not legalization, meaning that you cannot like buy or sell and that there's no like government regulated supply. But, uh, you know, it's still, 
I guess, one step in the right direction. And do you want to talk a little bit about what exactly this means? Yeah. So part of why... So this policy came into place January 31st. We are now recording on March 9th. And so it's been a little bit. Part of why I wanted to wait a little bit to record this episode was to kind of get a sense of what was happening and how it was being implemented. The other thing is on Tuesday of last week, part of why I was so busy was because Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy had a panel that we organized with UBC law students for DCRIM. It was a panel of mainly people who are engaged in organizations on the ground. Um, And so I'll talk more about kind of those organizations after, but I wanted to wait because I got to hear from them kind of how it's actually affecting people and how people are seeing change um, if they are. How this has been implemented It isn't a policy in itself. It's an exemption from the Controlled Substances, Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is a federal act that essentially BC just got an exemption from. So the policy isn't a new policy. It's just an exemption, and it's only a three-year project. Um, A lot of people are really hopeful and it's really great that this has happened. Um, One of the people who has kind of said a lot about it is Garth Mullins who does the podcast Crackdown and I saw a video that came out of him that day and he was just very thankful and reiterating that 2.5 grams is not enough. This policy is not enough. But we need to be grateful for the people who have fought, um, people on the ground, organizations, especially VANDU, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, who have been fighting for better and more kind of just drug policy for years and years. How is it actually affecting people? On the panel, what the panelists kind of emphasized was that not much change has been seen, especially because the people who continue to enforce this policy are police. And you can't necessarily change the actions of police just based on changing policy. Also, how police have been taught quote-unquote how to enforce this policy is an optional online training with part of it is just images of how much to guess 2.5 grams looks like wait so they don't actually have like like if they're in their car they don't actually have a mechanism for weighing it no and that's actually a good thing because cops shouldn't be able to take a substance off someone and they shouldn't be able to kind of measure it and then lengthen the amount of time that they are spending with a person. Okay. Um, Especially because we know the people that they will actually be enforcing this policy to are unhoused people and um, not people doing these drugs in a building you know, in the uh, in North Van, in North Van, yeah, or in on endowment lands, yeah, exactly, yeah, Yale Town, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think about rich places in Vancouver, North Van, West Van, mm-hmm. West Van, they mm-hmm. would never, no, yeah. And so it's it's something to be like excited about because it is a policy that shows more care for people who are using substances and there is a possibility for less stigmatization, but there are a lot of fallbacks. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting um, to see change happening and I don't know, like it's frustrating that it isn't happening as quickly as needed or wanted, but 
it's a really, really cool thing to see. Um, NBC, in certain cases, has always turned a blind eye to certain things, but not to others. And it's good to see that in some cases it's kind of catching up. Um, like they, like shrooms in Vancouver are not policed in any way. No. You can like go to a dispensary and get shrooms, which is amazing. And like, so I'm so glad that it's like kind of regulated in a way and like not dangerous, quote unquote. Um, there are less harms associated with it because it's less criminalized. The harms are reduced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's really exciting to see, but that obviously hasn't been the same for other drugs. And um, I think there is an interesting point to point out there around, like, who uses shrooms and, like, which populations are using shrooms. And, yeah, it's just a, a question of, like, demographics and who's who's using what and why are they more criminalized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know you wanted to talk about some issues mm -hmm. with this policy, and I think that's very important. Um, you mentioned that 2.5 uh, grams earlier was like not enough to cover what, you know, people use. Um, why like why did they choose 2.5 and why is that not enough? Yeah, that's a good question. So originally what both kind of organizers on the downtown east side were asking for and what the city of Vancouver was asking the federal government for was 4.5 grams. 4.5 grams compared to 2.5 grams is like a lot. Like it's a lot. That, is, that yeah. is a significant difference. Um, and where the change actually came from was recommendation from, can you guess who? The wonderful Trudeau. No, but close. Law enforcement. Oh, for, yeah. <laughs> of course. So, so law enforcement was the or the body who recommended 2.5 grams um, instead of 4.5 grams. There are a few different problems with it being 2.5 grams. One, that is just not a lot of many of the substances included um, when we're talking about substances that can be used in many different ways and like 4.5 grams of something you're smoking looks a lot different than 4.5 grams of something that you might be injecting. That is part of the problem. The other thing is 2.5 grams might work for someone who is living close to where they get their substances who has a home that they can bring their substances back to, which is close to where they have their substances. But it doesn't work for a lot of people who are getting substances if they're in, in a rural setting and bringing their substances back. It yeah. doesn't work for people who um, live in precarious housing or who are unhoused and are going to a safer consumption site with that substance or people who don't get their substances themselves because they are at higher risk. Like a lot of trans and non-binary people, they don't get their substances themselves when they're living in areas where they don't feel like they will be kept safe. Um, and so 2.5 grams doesn't work for a large majority of people who are using criminalized substances. Yeah. And that part, what I find the hardest is that not only were, like, people who use substances asking for 4.5, but the city of Vancouver at the beginning, they yeah. were asking for 4.5. That's what surprised me because I, would, I have a very bad view of Vancouver, mm -hmm. apparently, but I did not expect that at all. Um, so... Yeah, I'm, it's incredible that that was the consensus about, among, like, local mm -hmm. uh, people and people who were pushing for policy. But, um, like, I guess, was it the local law enforcement that decided 2.5? It wasn't, yeah. like, the, the national, like, idea that we should go for 2.5 if it was local? Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I didn't yeah. expect that. Yep. Yeah, so does this... You mentioned earlier that, like... Oh, well, actually, I mentioned earlier from your article that... This includes people who are over the age of 18. Um, obviously, younger people use drugs. That's a thing that happens. Um, 
And so they're excluded. Is there anything in any capacity that like affects them or affects youth who use drugs? Yeah, so this policy essentially just leaves them out entirely. And so people who are under 18 and using substances are still criminalized. Uh, Some other groups who are also left out are the incarcerated population is entirely left out of this conversation. And I think that's important going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, the unjust system that we have and how it incarcerates more racialized people in Canada, which also includes people who are on parole and people who have left incarceration but are still criminalized. Um, they they are left out of this policy as Interesting. well. Interesting. Okay. So it's very uneven. And it's strange to me that youth would be excluded um, on that basis. I, I kind of understand based on like who like the rules of like you have to be 19 and up to consume things but it's very very strange to me and it's interesting because this isn't a substance or this isn't a policy that's legalizing things and so the government is not providing a supply in any sense they're just decriminalizing and so they have said that the ultimate goal is to save lives if that were entirely true why are you leaving youth out youth who are going to use substances and why are you leaving people who have been involved in the criminal justice system out if the goal is to save lives are those lives you aren't trying to save what's going on what about the euphoria girlies like (laughs) you're using every type of drug what about them so that's kind of that's kind of unfortunate in this policy you've mentioned or i mentioned earlier Uh, what drugs were included, and that included opioids, cocaine, meth, I will not say the full word because I can't pronounce it, and MDMA. Um, Obviously, this excludes a number of things. Um, I'm not super well-versed in what drugs exist. Um, So what else would be excluded from this policy? Yeah, so the main drug that is excluded that people have had like concerns about and are confused why it has been excluded is forms of benzodiazepines um good job pronouncing that uh, i in my work i spend a lot of time talking about drugs love um but when we talk about the kind of public health crisis that Vancouver is in, but also a lot of Canada is in, we often talk about the opioid overdose crisis that we're in. But what is affecting people more and more is also having benzodiazepines, benzos, uh, added into their drugs as well. Um, um, sorry, what is benzos? So benzodiazepine, it is a stimulant. Mm -hmm. Um, Why it is dangerous in this context is when you overdose on a stimulant like benzodiazepine, your breathing is essentially like what is the most impacted impacted and your ability to like wake up. And so when fentanyl is mixed in alongside benzodiazepines, if people are given Narcan or Naloxone and their opioid overdose is stopped, they can still be really hard to wake up and stop breathing still because of the benzos that are still in their system. So it's something that's like slipped into things. Is that, or well, is it something that people take? So it's the same thing as fentanyl. Like there are people who use fentanyl choice. Like they are choosing to use fentanyl. They know that they're using fentanyl. It's the same thing with benzos. Um, but because in Vancouver we don't have a safe supply across Canada, we don't have a safe supply. There are things mixed into people's substances, mm-hmm. and a lot of the time. That is fentanyl because of its potency and now benzodiazepines. Interesting. Okay. I I had no idea that it exists. I knew about fentanyl, as I think most people do now, Mm -hmm. Um, like pretty purely in the context of how it was being slipped into certain things um, and was becoming this like very strong drug that people used as uh, 
an alternative, um, but I hadn't heard about benzos, and that's terrifying. That like how they work mixed together, mm-hmm. and you know it's very nuanced. Yeah, yeah. So that's very interesting and horrible and terrifying. And I think from that conversation, the last and kind of one of the biggest issues in this form of decriminalization is that, as I've said a few times, the government has said the goal is to save lives. But we don't have a safe supply of substances. Right. And so even if people aren't criminalized for substances that they have on them, the substances that they have are not generally regulated and there's almost no way to be entirely sure what is in something you're taking yeah and that's because of stigma that is because of criminalization because there is a black market and there Mm -hmm. people are don't have a regulated source to go through yeah there are organizations that do a lot of work to stop this and BC is one of the places that has a lot of these supports because we've had this public health crisis for so long. Um, So there are like drug checking sites in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. um, which you can go to and get kind of a more nuanced understanding of what's in the substance you're taking, make a more informed decision, uh, whatever that looks like to you. When you know what's in something, you can use in the best way for yourself as as possible. Yeah. There are also community organizations which are ensuring safe supply for their own communities. And one of those is DULF, the Drug User Liberation Front. They have now had a kind of community safe supply running for about six months. And no one has died from a... (laughs) Yeah, no, no one. Yeah, so so no one has died from using the drugs that they are sourcing through that wow. community supply. That's and incredible. I, it is incredible, and I think it's also a really important way to understand this broad field of harm reduction, which has always been peer led, which has always been kind of supporting each other and mm-hmm. keeping each other safe, keeping each other alive. Yeah. Um, when we think of harm reduction in our context, when the like idea of harm reduction emerged was when people who were using injection drugs noticed a higher level of HIV and AIDS right. um, within their own communities. Mm-hmm. That is something that peers recognized and peers wanted to keep each other alive. And so that's when harm reduction kind of emerges as a concept and as a philosophy. Um, and that's it's um, beautiful. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, but it's, it's not enough. Like, yeah. the ultimate goal should not be let's keep each other alive. And it also should not be on peers. Mm-hmm. It should be on... On the, the government, state, yeah. the state, on kind of the institutions of power. Mm-hmm. But what's happening right now is really beautiful with people keeping each other alive. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I know Portugal has uh, a really good system from what I've heard. Obviously, there's nuances to it and it's not definitely not the end all be all as nothing is. But I've heard that it's really good. I, It's like in, everything's decriminalized, I believe. Are you? I am not that well versed, but uh, yes, a that random is, country's decrim yes, a policy really decrim policy. I spend yeah. too much on Canada's. Ooh, Portugal decriminalized the public and private use, acquisition, and possession of all drugs in two thousand, um, and I believe it helped the country. Like it, it was an incredibly effective model. Uh, people didn't suffer as much. People were a lot safer. People stayed alive, uh, which is really, really cool, um, obviously. Um, so, like, is, like, do any other provinces in Canada, like, you mentioned BC has a lot of uh, policies in place to support people. What are the other policies in Canada? What do they look like? Mm-hmm. So the biggest one to talk about is Alberta. Okay. Because Alberta and BC have very parallel crises. Um, How the public health emergency of the overdose crisis has kind of looked in both provinces has been similar. 
how the provinces have reacted is very, very different. So I mentioned harm reduction. BC as a province has kind of taken on harm reduction as its policy approach. How often they actually put that into policy and if it is truly kind of working for people and they're truly trying to reduce the harm that people experience is a very different question. But Alberta has taken on a method of kind of what people call forced treatment, forced recovery, instead of trying to reduce the harm that people experience while they're using substances, Alberta's model is increasing the number of addiction and recovery programs and treatment centers and essentially continuing the criminalization of drugs for the prioritization of abstinence-based recovery programs. If it were an increase of recovery and treatment programs with harm reduction policies and with recovery programs that don't force abstinence, that would be a better model. Yeah. But just forcing recovery and just forcing treatment, for one, it continues the stigmatization of substance use and it continues the stigmatization of people who use substances. Mm -hmm. It also takes away the autonomy of people. People can choose to use substances. People can choose what to do with their own bodies and what wellness looks like to their own bodies. Treatment is not one going to work for everyone and also treatment does not have to look like abstinence it doesn't have to be one model and one model only yeah when you mentioned like locking people away and like no no you didn't sorry you were just talking about like one thing fits all Mm -hmm. um yeah again drawing back to the olympics there was a lot of like one thing fits all with how unhoused people were treated. Um, And yeah, that's a pretty horrible model. Very Alberta. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to shit on Alberta. (laughs) That's horrible. Um, And that's encouraging that BC is following the more like harm reduction philosophy, uh, even if it doesn't get carried out. Um, But that, that is interesting. That difference in policies. Mm -hmm. What can we do? So Yeah. So for this section, I have it divided into what can we do in two sections, individual harm reduction and community-level harm reduction. So, Asina, when I say individual harm reduction, what does that make you think of? Uh, I think about the giant box of uh, drug testing things we have in our bathroom (laughs) (laughs) and I think about like individually testing our drugs and like like an individual based kind of thing of like I'm gonna test my own drugs and I'm gonna like I don't know do if I use drugs that could potentially harm me or have something in them I'll use them at like uh, a safe injection site kind of stuff like that would that be correct yeah so Individual harm reduction is kind of what are the things that I as an individual have to take on because substance use is something that is not without harm Mm -hmm. and because there is not a safe supply and because drugs are stigmatized. So (laughs) we do have a box uh, in our bathroom. (laughs) Our bathroom is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. We have Saul on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a bit of... Saul from... Oh, yeah. I can't just say Saul. You guys don't live at my house. Um, We have Saul Goodman from from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Uh, We have a photo of him, the, like, meme photo of him taped to the ceiling of our bathroom right above our toilet. Um, And he just kind of looks down on us uh, like the god that he is. Um, And also in the bathroom is a little picnic basket with a bunch of different things uh, from, like, your work. Menstrual products, condoms, lube, fentanyl test strips. Yeah. We had a, like, house party a few weeks. No, it was like a month ago It was a long time ago. And I was like, we are putting these out. If people need stuff, they can take them. And then we never took them down. Because if people, if we have resources and people need them, take them. Because we have people over, like, quite a bit. So if anyone, you know, sees anything and is like, oh, that might come in handy in the future, 
Boom, take, take it. it. Harm reduction. Harm reduction. And yeah. that's that's individual harm reduction. It's not necessarily like these are the things that I'm going to do just for myself. But like, what can I do to reduce the harm you experience, my friend? Yeah. Um, uh, is that like carrying naloxone? Mm-hmm. And like, okay, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So all of those methods are great. And if people are curious about like more individual harm reduction, like just look up drug harm reduction list will come up. But what I think we need to focus on more is community level harm reduction. So thinking about what communities are you in and what changes can you make to those communities. So a great example would be a safe supply. The government is a community. They could provide a safe supply. They don't. What are other communities that we're a part of? We had a house party, and so we were party organizers. We were inviting people Mm -hmm. into our space. So what were the roles that we took on to keep people safe? Naloxone. Naloxone. The little goodie bags. Little goodie bags. Even like picnic basket. There there were sober people who were hosting the party. There were, um, like, we had beverages for everyone. We had snacks for everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, these are little things, but, like, what can we do to provide safety for community we're creating? Yeah. Um, And for, like, bartenders and for, like, people hosting parties, what does that look like? Can you have a statement on your ticket Here are some of the harm reduction methods we're putting into place. Um, We have a policy on, like, racism and, like, homophobia and, like, um, heteronormativity. Like, if you use slurs, you're going to get thrown out. Like, are these things that we can put into place as people who are in parts of communities? Um, and, And how do we keep our communities safe? on a broader level than just, oh, you're using a substance or you are doing something, and so you have to keep yourself safe. How can we as people who are in communities create safer communities? Yeah, exactly. If you have your Serving It Right in BC, um, which is essentially like this little course you have to pass to be able to serve alcohol to people or other drugs maybe. Actually, I don't think so. I think it's just alcohol. I think just alcohol. Weed might be different. Um, but, yeah, if you have that certificate, you know you can't serve extra drinks to people who are already, like, drunk. Mm-hmm. So it's that's harm reduction. Like, And, like, do you have mocktails available? Do yes. you have non-alcoholic fun drinks available? Exactly. With like, a little silly straw. Yeah. Like, I want a fucking umbrella. I do want you, a little umbrella in my drink, if, even if I don't have alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Do you have water free there for mm-hmm. people to drink? Yeah. Do you have little cups for people to use if they have a fentanyl test strip and they need to test something? Exactly. Like, what are you doing as a person with some form of power in some type of community to make other people safer? Exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. And it's really empowering that there's, like, stuff we can do at an individual level. Um, I embarrassingly don't have my naloxone training. I promise I will. 10 to 4 p.m. at the UBC Wellness Center. Every day? Every day. Wait, really? Yeah. This is what oh I do, friend. Okay, I'll drop by. <laughs> I'll, like, open my calendar. Slay. Okay, well, if you live in the immediate vicinity, 10 to 4 p.m. Oh, UBC 11 Wellness. to 4, actually. 11 Oops. to 4. 11 to 4. 11 to 4 p.m. Yeah. Uh, drop by and in get the your... Life building. In the life building, which means nothing to you, that person from Australia. Um, <laughs> but I hope there's somewhere you can get naloxone training. If you training. catch a flight... Um, you can sleep over at our house and get free <laughs> We'll watch um, H2O just add water to make you feel more at home. <laughs> this person's going to, like, hate me less from now on. I'm so sorry. Um, but, yeah, that's really, really cool. Um, and I appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else we wanted to address? Yeah, the the last thing that I had in here was just kind of uplifting a few kind of user-led organizations and organizations that do a lot of work. Specifically, I'm talking about the context of Vancouver because that's where we are. Um, And these were people who were represented on the panel, which 
maybe we can put the link in yeah, to the panel absolutely um, for people to learn more um, from someone who isn't me and someone who isn't you. But some of the organizations that I wanted to uplift for people to look into if you are looking for places to financially support or to learn more from, Van Du, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, Dolph, the Drug User Liberation Front, Wars, the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, and BC Association of People on Opioid Maintenance. And then one more, which is not a user-led organization, but an organization that works with people who use substances and works to, um, is doing a lot of fighting back against the kind of legal policies going on, is a legal organization called Pivot Legal, and they have a lot of lit literature out um, oh, following okay. decrim, um, which would be really good for people to yeah, we can to. link that too. We'll probably link all of them or have some form of a link for mm -hmm. all of them, and um, we can link because them that's a lot to remember. Media. But I love Dolph. Dolph. Yeah. Dolph. That's really fun. <laughs> Dolph. Um, so shout out to them for having the greatest acronym of all time. Um, but yeah, I think. We should probably wrap it up. We should. There. It's been an hour. Oh my it's gosh! Been Sorry, an guys. Hour. I um, spent so many hours of my days thinking about this stuff. No, it's amazing, so. and I haven't actually like sat down and heard a lot of it. I read your article a long time ago, <laughs> and it's a banger of an article. Okay, it's um, a banger of an article, but also no critiques of this policy, which I have brought up here were yeah. included in that article because it was just for student comms and just about what was going on. So it's not very nuanced. But if you want just facts. You can read it. Yes, and it's a great article. But, um, yeah, so if you want to read more information, please read there. And if you want nuanced takes, please uh, listen to this podcast again. <laughs> or, you know, uh, we'll have other links down below on the episode description. Um, but in the meantime, thank you for listening. We love you. We love you. Um, Even if you're not from Australia. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, if you want to find us anywhere, uh, all you have to do is look up Shouting from the Kitchen. We're on Instagram at that. Uh, you can email us. Uh, please email us. Yeah. We would love an email. We got our first spam email we a while did. ago, which was really fun. Um, but we do want emails other than spam emails. So if you want to just send us a note about how we're wrong about something, please do that. We would love that. And in the meantime, I hope you have a great week, I mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Yeah, and shout out to our lovely roommate for making the beautiful music you're about to be. Oh, you want to do okay. the lovely music you are about to hear? That was so beautiful. That was so ASMR of you. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, bye. Bye.